Let's turn to Acts chapter 3 this morning. <coughs> Acts chapter 3. <coughs> Acts 3, and let's just read from verse 11. <coughs> it says, And as a lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering. When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why will ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness we had made this man walk. And let's just open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to around your word and to seek to gain a better understanding of it, Lord. And Lord, that this morning you would empower me through the holy spirit that lord you would give me wisdom and guidance as i preach Lord, everything i say this morning would be your words would be your thoughts and that lord you would teach us and instruct us the word and lord i pray that you would be honored and glorified for it all and i pray these things now in jesus name amen of course last time we looked at verses 1 to 10 and we saw the the healing of the lame man this beggar who was sitting at the gate, beautiful, to the temple. And in particular, when we looked at that miracle, we focused on Brendan's response, didn't we? We focused on the fact that they stopped and they paid attention to this man, this man who was crying out for arms, crying out for some money. Now, Peter and John, of course, couldn't meet his temporal need of money. They didn't have the means to give him silver and gold, which is what he was after, but... They had something far greater to give under him. So they knew that what this man really needed, they could give through the power of Christ. This man needed physical healing, and as we saw, spiritual healing as well. And both could only be found in the power of Christ. You know, money was not going to solve that man's problems. And Peter and John, they stopped and they saw this, and they met this man's need. And we saw Peter commands him in the name of Jesus Christ to rise up and walk. Verse 6, it says, Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And so Peter says in the name of Christ, rise and walk. And this man is immediately healed. He's able to stand. He's able to walk. There's a change that takes place. And as we saw, there's a spiritual change as well. He gives glory and honor to God. Okay? And he attaches himself to the disciples. You know, following this, the people in the temple, you know, they see this man walking and leaping and praising God. They see what happened. They see the change in this man. So much so that they're confused, they're perplexed, they're marveling at what has taken place. Look in verse 10 with me, it says, And they knew that it was he which sat for arms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened under him. So they're, they're filled with wonder and they can't understand this. They can't understand how this has all taken place. You know, this, this one who was lame from birth, for 40 years this man has been like this. And now suddenly this man is walking and leaping like a little child. You know, it would make us, wouldn't it? It would gather our attention too. That's what happens here. It draws their attention. They want to know more. They want to understand the source of this power. How did this happen? Who has done this? And so a crowd gathers around Peter and John. Verse 11, And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, 
All the people ran together unto them in the porch. Solomon's greatly wondering. He's holding on to John, and so it's immediately clear that they had something to do with it. And so everyone gathers around them. It says they run together. Now they're excited by this. They want to know more. They gather around Peter on. And you know, this gives Peter now another opportunity, a great opportunity to preach the truth, and he doesn't pass it up. He doesn't pass up this opportunity with this crowd around him to turn their attention to the Lord and preach the truth. In verse 12, it starts out by saying, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people. He answers them. He opens his mouth and he preaches the truth. You know, this is the second time in as many passages, sorry, in as many chapters, that Peter has done this. You know, in chapter 2, we see Pentecost, Peter boldly stood up and preached the truth. And now he stands for a second time and preaches the truth. You know, this second sermon recorded for him in chapter 3 has many of the characteristics of the first one. They're very similar. You know, when you think about both of them began with a miracle. Both were preached to crowds who had gathered in amazement. Both were addressed, ye men of Israel, to the same people. In both, it appeals to scriptural authority. And in both, he directly and strongly appeals for the people to repent and believe. Very similar sermons, very, very similar thrusts to the sermons. But in mind, I want us to consider the content of this second message, this small detail. I couldn't very well skip over it. We are doing a pre through the book. I couldn't very well skip it. So we're going to look at his second message this morning. We're going to sort of look at the content of his message in more detail. And there are essentially two parts to Peter's sermon in this passage. Two parts to Peter's sermon. First of all, we see the miracle explained. The miracle explained. Look in verse 12. It says, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and did him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be done to you. And he killed the prince and killed the prince of life, which God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea. The faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You know, at Pentecost, Peter had begun by refuting the accusation that the believers were drunk. Just go back to chapter 2 with me. Fresh your memories. Chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, And they were, were all amazed and were in doubt, no, sorry, and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. So you remember the, the people had gathered in amazement, very similar to what's happened here in chapter 3. They gathered in amazement. Some of them had said, oh, the believers must be drunk. They made accusation. And so Peter had begun his sermon by refuting that accusation, saying, no, the men are not drunk. And then he proceeded to tell them what it really was, what really was taking place. 
In chapter 3, we find a similar thing happens. We find that this time Peter begins his sermon by refuting the notion that he and John had healed this man in their own power. Verse 12, he says, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? And so he begins by refuting this notion. You see, evidently the people had gathered around Peter and John with a, a look of reverence. You know, they gathered around them and they're reverencing Peter and John and they're, they're looking at Peter and John and they're marveling at the power that had been displayed. But they think that Peter and John have this power in of themselves. They're sort of looking at them as the source of this miracle, as, at them as the, the source by which this has happened. And Peter here immediately refutes this notion. He immediately makes it clear to them where the true source from the miracle was, where the true source of power was. It was in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 13, God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus. He makes it clear that the power didn't come from them. Peter and John make it clear that they don't have any special healing powers. They reject any reverence from the people. And instead, they immediately point the, the people's attention where? To the Lord. They turn the people's attention towards God and towards His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They give glory where it is due. You know, as I was thinking about that this morning, I thought, you know, already we've got a lesson for each of us concerning our ministry for the Lord, don't we? That in our ministry, in our service for the Lord, we must always make sure that we turn His attention where? To the Lord. That we give all praise, all glory back unto the Lord. You know, think about it. Peter and John, they could have soaked up the praise of men. They could have soaked up the praise of men. They could have bathed in the popularity that was theirs. You know, the people were popular towards them right now. The people love them. You know, they'd done this great miracle. They asked them that they could have enjoyed it. Instead, what they do is they immediately point the people's attention back towards God. They turn the people's attention where it needs to be. And even today, like Peter and John, you and I are empowered by the Spirit to do the Lord's will. We're empowered by the, by the Spirit to do that which He has for us, you know, the service, the ministry He has for us. And, you know, we must ever be mindful that we point people's attention back to the Lord. We give all glory and honor unto Him. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, a verse we know well, says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Yeah, that applies to our service as well. We're to do our service to the glory of God. Pointing people's attention and praise unto Him so that people might come to Him. That's the whole reason we serve, isn't it? So that people might be turned to Him and that people might get saved. And so we have to always make sure that we point attention back to the Lord. You know, the Pharisees, they were the exact opposite of this, weren't they? The Pharisees were the exact opposite. Everything they did was so that they might receive the glory of men, the praise of men for themselves. Just turn to Matthew 6 with me. I just want to read a couple of passages here. Matthew 6. Matthew 6 and verse 2, first of all, it says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues 
and in the streets, um, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Then in verse 5 it says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, above to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Verse 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. You know, the, the Pharisees were hypocrites, weren't they? Everything they did was for the praise of men. Everything they did, their service, was for the praise. They wanted men to praise them. They wanted honor and glory from men to go to them. You know, they were the complete opposite of Peter and John here. Peter and John don't bask in the praise of men. Peter and John don't want the praise of men. They turn the people's attention back unto the Lord. And that needs to be our focus as believers as well. That we always turn people's attention to the Lord. That praise and glory goes to Him. Because it's only through Him that we can do anything. That we can accomplish anything for Him. And so glory must go to Him. Praise to Him and Him alone. And Peter now having turned the people's attention where it needs to be, put their face back on the Lord, Peter now begins to strike at their guilt, to strike hard at their guilt. Verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now, as he had with his sermon at Pentecost, Peter begins now showing their guilt, showing them clearly that they are guilty of putting to death their Messiah, guilty of putting Jesus Christ on the cross. It reminds them here of how badly they treated this innocent man. Regardless of the fact that he was the son of God, he, he shows them how bad they treated just an innocent man. They denied him. They delivered him to be crucified. But worse still was the fact that they'd asked for a murderer. They'd asked for Barabbas to be delivered unto them so that an innocent man could be crucified. What Peter accuses them here of is putting to death an innocent man. He says, you murdered him. It's a pretty hard accusation, isn't it? And they were guilty of this accusation, and they know they're guilty. Regardless of whether Jesus was the Son of God, which he is, and Peter gets to that, and that's all in here as well. But putting that aside notion, they were guilty of putting an innocent man to death, and that strikes deep. That strikes deep in their hearts, this guilt that they have because they murdered an innocent man. But Peter here is very careful as well, as I said, to point that Jesus was much more than a man. He's very careful to point out that Jesus was and is the eternal Son of God. Notice in this passage here, he calls him God's Son. He calls him the Holy One, the Just, the Prince of Life. All those titles are used in those three verses. All those titles, God's Son, the Holy One, the Just, the Prince of Life. Peter makes it abundantly clear that yes, you murdered an innocent man, but that innocent man was more than that. That innocent man was and is the eternal Son of God. He was and is your Messiah. That's what he's saying here. He's saying you rejected and you murdered your Messiah. He goes on then in verse 15 
to tell them that although they had rejected, although they had murdered the Lord Jesus Christ, God had raised him back to life. At the end of verse 15, it says, Whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Now, Peter once again testifies boldly of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ, the fact that Christ was raised back to life. He says, you murdered him, you crucified him, you put to death your Messiah, but God has raised him back to life. And then Peter boldly declares, plainly declares, that it's in Christ's name, it's in Christ's power that this man was healed. Look in verse 16. It says, and his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfectness in the presence of you all. Peter makes it so clear, doesn't he? He says, it's Christ's name. It's the one you crucified, the one you put on the cross. That's the power that healed this man. You know, you put him to death, but Christ is risen. God hath raised him back to life. He's ascended to glory and now he is working on earth through his apostles, empowered by the spirits. It was his power, his name that had made this man whole. You see, what Peter has just done here, explaining this miracle, explaining the source of this power, is that he's brought the people to a point of decision. That's what Peter has done here. In these verses that we've just read and we quickly looked at, what Peter has been doing is he's been bringing the people to a point of decision. No one standing before Peter could deny that a miracle had happened. I mean, standing between Peter and John is this man who had been healed. No one could deny the miracle. No one could deny that the power had happened. And Peter now has just declared unto them that they crucified the one who healed this man. The one they put to death is the Messiah, and he is the one who has healed this man standing before you. You see, the point is he's brought them to a point of decision, hasn't he? They have a decision now to make. Either they admit their guilt that they crucified the Messiah and they admit that it's his power that healed this man and they believe and be saved or they reject Christ, they reject the miracle and they harden their hearts. They have one of two decisions, don't they? That's the whole point here. He's brought them to a point of decision. They must make a decision, either believe and accept Christ or reject him and harden their hearts. And beloved, that's where every gospel message must begin, isn't it? That's where every gospel message must begin. We must begin by showing people who God is, who Christ is, showing them that they are guilty before Him, that they're a sinner, lost and on their way to hell. See, beloved, people will not come to Christ unless they are first of all confronted with the fact that they are a sinner, guilty before God. If they don't know they're a sinner, they're not going to get saved. Knocking on their door and saying prayer does not save them. They must first realize they're lost. In a sense, we must get them lost before they can get saved, don't we? Get them lost before they can get saved. We've got to show them their need. And that's exactly what Peter does here. He shows them their guilt, shows them their sin. He brings them to a point of decision where they have to make a decision about what they're going to do. Believe or reject the Messiah. And that's where now we see his second point. As now the multitude is exhorted to repent. The multitude exhorted. Look at verse 17 and onwards. It says, And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also yours. 
But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the prophets, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after as have spoken have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all, all kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Having explained the miracle and turned the people's attention to Christ, shown them clearly their guilt, brought them to this point of decision, Peter now exhorts the people to repent and believe. But he begins here in verse 17 by acknowledging the people's ignorance. Acknowledging that they crucified Christ in ignorance. In verse 17 it says, And now, brethren, I wot, or I know, that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. Peter agrees, he understands, acknowledges here, that they did it through ignorance. They put Christ on the cross not knowing who Christ was. You know, they hadn't understood God's eternal plan. They hadn't understood that Christ was the Messiah. It was in ignorance that they crucified him. Now, that didn't make them innocent. That's not what Peter's saying here. He's not trying to sponge their guilt and say, oh, it's not your fault. That's not what he's saying. They were still guilty of putting Christ on the cross. They were guilty of putting him to death. Peter here in verse 17 is simply acknowledging that they hadn't deliberately put their Messiah to death. He says, I know that you, in ignorance, put your Messiah to death, put Christ to death. And what he's doing is he's giving them the opportunity to repent. He's saying, I know it was a sin of ignorance. Now admit your sin and repent. Believe. He goes on in verse 18 to point out that despite all the evil they'd done to Christ, it had not hindered God's eternal plan. Verse 18. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Now Peter says, even though you did all this evil to the Messiah, even though you put him to death, don't think it's hindered God's eternal plan. Far from it, their actions had actually fulfilled God's eternal plan. You know, God had said that his servant, that the Messiah would suffer, and the Messiah suffered on the cross. Their actions had led to the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Once again, Peter's not justifying their actions. He's giving them an excuse so they can say, oh, well, God made us do it. No, God did not make them do it. They simply fulfilled God's eternal plan by their actions. What he's trying to say here is he's trying to say God was in control. He's pointing out to them that through it all, God was in control of it all. God knows what he's doing. It was all part of God's plan. It's a bit like what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Just turn over there quickly. 
in Genesis 50. Verse 20, it says, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You know, Joseph's brothers had done much evil unto him. They'd done terrible things by him. But God had meant it for good. God used it to accomplish his eternal plan, his glory. And the same is true here. Peter is saying, although you've done all these evil actions, although you've put him to death, although you've sinned, God was in control. God is it to his glory. God has used it to accomplish his purpose. What he's doing here is he's giving them a chance to repent. He's showing them there is forgiveness to be found in the Lord. They'd done it through ignorance. And in ignorance, they fulfilled God's plan. And Peter now says, now repent, now believe on the Lord. He goes on in verse 19 to exhort them to do two things. He says in verse 19, repent ye therefore and be converted. Repent and be converted. First of all, he tells them, repent ye therefore. As we've seen before, repentance is, of course, a change of mind. He exhorts them to have a change of of mind. He says, now change your mind about who Christ is. Change your mind about your actions towards Christ. Repent of that. Acknowledge your sin and turn towards God. Acknowledge him as your Messiah. He secondly says to be converted. Okay, repent ye therefore and be converted. Now the word translated converted here in the Greek is actually a word that means to come again or to turn again. The idea is that they needed to turn to God in faith. When we put the two together here, what Peter is exhorting them to do, he's exhorting them to acknowledge their sin, repent, and turn to God in faith, believe. That's what he's saying. Sort of gets lost here in our translation where it says, be converted because that's something done unto you. Okay, but it actually says, it says, repent ye therefore and turn again. That's what it's saying. Okay, they were to repent, acknowledge their sin, and turn to God in faith. Acknowledge Him. And Peter says if they will only do this, if they only repent and believe, Peter says the result will be the forgiveness of sins. He says in verse 19, Repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. He says if you'll only do this, if you'll acknowledge that what you did was wrong, if you acknowledge that Christ is your Messiah, if you will believe, God will forgive you. He says, God will forgive and God will remember it no more. Their sins will be blotted out. If only as individuals they would acknowledge their sin before God. Now, Peter has just shown them their guilty. That's what he started out with, wasn't it? Showing them their guilt. Showing them they were guilty of killing the Messiah. Now, he says, there's forgiveness to be found if only you'll believe. He says, yes, you're guilty. What you did was wrong. It's sin. You're guilty before God. But turn to God and God will forgive you. God will forgive you of that sin if you only believe. You know, the message of the gospel is still the same today. It hasn't changed, has it? still the same. We must, like Peter, point people to Christ, turn their attention to the Lord, show them their sin, show them their guilt, so that they might then repent and believe. The promise is still the same. If people will repent, if people will believe, their sins will blot it out. You know, for those of us who are already what a wonderful truth that is. To know that our sins are blotted out. Now, we've been washed 
white as snow. In the eyes of God, you and I now stand righteous in the righteousness of Christ. Our sins have been blotted out, yet they've been taken away to be remembered no more. Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us that he has cast them as far as the east is from the west. It's a glorious verse, isn't it? A verse I'm sure we all know, know well and love. It's a wonderful truth to know that he has cast them as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't remember them anymore. And beloved, nothing you and I ever do can change that. Nothing we do can change that. All of our sins are forgiven. Past, present and future are covered by the blood. They are blotted out. We stand redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And what a wonderful truth that is. If we can't get excited about that, there's something wrong, isn't there? If we can't get excited about the fact that all we had to do was repent and believe and our sins are blotted out, there's something wrong. We can't get excited and say, praise God for that wonderful truth. You know, Peter's not finished as he goes on at the end of verse 19. He desired not only an individual response, but he also desired a national response. He desired the nation as a whole turn towards the Lord and repent so that God might set up a kingdom here on earth. Peter really wants the millennial kingdom to happen. See, at the end of the verse, we read this. It says, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now, the word translated when there at the start of that phrase actually means in order that. So essentially what it reads is, in order that the times of the refreshing shall come, presence of the Lord. What Peter is saying here is repent and believe as a nation. And the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. He's saying the millennial kingdom will come. Repent and believe and the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ can begin. Peter here is calling for national repentance. And the declaration is that if they will do this, Messiah will return and set up his kingdom. He goes on in verse 20, he says, And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, that's the millennial kingdom, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Essentially here, Peter is offering them the chance as a nation. Offering them the chance to hasten the return of the Lord by embracing the Lord on a national level. You know, the acceptance of Christ by the nation is one of the things that must happen for Christ to set up his kingdom here on earth. Just go to Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 25. Romans 11 verse 25, it says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away us from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So this is one of the that must happen. Israel will turn to the Lord in repentance, in faith. And Peter here is seemingly offering them the chance as a nation to hasten this time in. Now, I read in a lot of commentators this week who said, you know, so if they had accepted Christ, what would have happened? Well, we can only assume that the millennial kingdom would have happened because it's God's eternal word, isn't it? We can only assume that if they had repented as a nation, the millennial reign would have begun. Christ would have come. Okay, but God knew they wouldn't, didn't he? 
which is why we have the church age. Okay, So speculation is sort of theoretical, isn't it? But if God said in his word, we have to believe that it would have happened. It would have occurred if they had, as a nation, accepted Christ on this day. And Peter then finishes this chapter by warning them about reaching the Lord. He warns them of the dangers of rejecting the Messiah. He goes on in verse 20, 23 to tell them that Moses had prophesied that this one would come and that if they reject him, it's condemnation. Verse 22 he says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he lands you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Peter here warns them. He says, Moses told you this prophet was coming. That prophet is Jesus. That prophet is Thyre. And if you don't hear his words, as Moses said, you will be destroyed. There's condemnation if you don't hear the word of the Messiah. But it wasn't just Moses who had told that Christ was coming. All the prophets were united in their witness. Verse 24, it says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Peter says it wasn't just Moses, all the prophets prophesied of these days, prophesied of the Messiah coming, prophesied of his work and what he would do. See, the point is here, Peter is warning to pass up the opportunity. He says, you had all this forewarning this was going to happen. You had all the prophets. You should have known that the Messiah was coming. You should have recognized the Messiah. You didn't. And now Peter says, don't reject, reject him a second time. He rejected him at the cross. Don't reject him now. Don't reject him again. He exhorts them to listen to the prophets, listen to the message, and believe before it's too late. He then concludes verse 25 and 26 by pointing out their privileged position. He says, Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you, first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquity. They were the children of the prophets. They were the children of the covenant. They should have known the prophet promises. They should have known the prophecies. They should have recognized the Messiah. But not only that, they also had the gospel preached unto them first. That's verse 26, isn't it? Unto you first. It was unto them first of all that they received the gospel message. It was only after this that the focus turns towards the Gentiles. Unto them first. They were in a privileged position. And Peter exhorts them here, don't pass up this opportunity. Don't reject the Messiah. Don't reject him for a second time, but accept him, believe, and be saved. And then in chapter 4, there is a mixed result. Just read quickly verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until unto the next day. Now even tired, have it many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. Here we see there is a mixed result to the message on that. The leaders of Israel, they reject it. And they lay hands upon Peter and John and they throw them in the hold, put him in prison basically overnight. 
But in verse 4, we see that at the same time, many believe. It says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. Five dimensioned here is believed to be a total sum. Okay, so it's a total sum including the 3,000 from Pentecost. So that means that now another 2,000 are saved. They believe it's like adding up, saying it's now is 5,000 men. Okay, so they believe it's sort of a total. And so it would seem that 2,000 are saved on this day as this message is preached. And you know, this all happened, why? Because Peter and John stopped to heal a lame man. They saw his need. They stopped and met that need and then they turned the people's attention unto the Lord, exhorting the people to repent and believe. And beloved, what we have in this passage is an example for all of us to follow. An example that as believers we need to follow. You see, we must always seek to turn people's attention to the Lord. Seek to get them to see the Messiah, get them to see who Christ is, see his work and see their needs, see the fact that they are a sinner lost and on their way to hell. And then, beloved, we need to, like Peter, exhort them to repent and believe so that their sins may be blotted out. Only through faith in him can they know that wonderful experience of having their sins covered by the blood of the Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Peter and his boldness, Lord, to stand up and preach unto the nation of Israel. And Lord, we thank you for the example that we have for all of us as believers, that Lord, we need to constantly turn people's attention to you so they might see you. And Lord, show them their guilt, show them their sin, so they might repent and believe before it is eternally too late for them. Lord, may we go forth from this place with a passion for souls. Lord, as we read this chapter, we can see Peter's passion for his people, his passion for them to come to you before it's too late. And Lord, I pray that you help us to have a passion for the people of this valley. A passion for the unsaved we work with, the unsaved we meet. Lord, may we show them you. May they turn to you before it's too late, we pray in Jesus' name.